Hello, everybody. <laughs> Sound like Dr. Nick Riviera. I uh, hope you're doing well. The wrist bone is connected to the wrist watch. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the promotional malpractice live chat on MMAfighting.com. Hope you're doing well. You can hear Barbas walking around. I'm going to throw him out the window when this is all over. Uh, today on the podcast, we will talk about, let's see, Cyborg, everything that happened or as, so far as that's been announced for UFC 208. We just had UFC 206. It was pretty incredible. No one's talking about Francis Ngannou, apparently, except me, but that's crazy. We'll talk to him, if, or talk about him anyway, if you want to get to that as well. Uh, let's see. There's also a Bellator in Ireland on uh, this weekend, as well as UFC on Fox 22. There is a ton going on. We'll get to all of that and then some. Best place to get your questions in is on the live thread where this video is posted, not on YouTube, but on MMAfighting.com. Uh, let's see. You can get at me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. You can use the hashtag chat rappers. I'll take a look at those uh, about uh, three fourths of the way through. Well, not quite, quite like five sixths of the way through. Something more like that. Um, yeah, that's how it'll go. Uh, I actually went to the gym this morning and I'm still in the anabolic window. You know what the anabolic window is? It's not anabolic steroids. Anabolic window is roughly two hours after you've worked out. It's not even actually, sh they're not even sure the anabolic window is a real thing, but the belief is sort of after two hours after you've worked out, um, that's the best time to, you know, not really replenish your body, but to give it the nutrients and other substances it needs for recovery, but also growth. Here is my creatine. I was off creasing for like the last three months. Uh, I'm just back on it now. Mm -hmm. You know, every time there's a picture that I mean, it comes out. People are like, oh, no wonder you <clears throat> ask questions about USADA. You're on them roids. And I'm like, if I was on roids, I can assure you I wouldn't be on creatine drive from Nutrex. I'm on creatine drive because I'm not. Mm. There we go. All right. Shot of creatine. Creatine. Before we start, I'm ready to rock. All right. First question. Let's see here. Team Habib versus Team Ferguson. Tough 25. Luke, in a recent interview with Submission Radio, shout-outs to the boys down under, Tony Ferguson suggested the idea of him versus Habib coaching Season 25 of The Ultimate Fighter. It's no secret that the recent installations of The Ultimate Fighter have been rather lackluster and haven't drawn much viewership on television, but a heated rivalry between two fan favorites might bring back some interest. What MMA fans wouldn't enjoy a season that has a team of Russian Dagestanis fighting against a team of Mexican-Americans? Okay. That would be a ratings bonanza. Ratings bonanza is a strong word, but sure, that'd be a good pair to generate some animosity. But I don't think the ratings would be blockbuster. I don't think either of those guys are particularly big stars, and I don't think the franchise is that interesting. Moreover, why do we want to encumber ourselves with a season of The Ultimate Fighter when we could just make the fight? Just make the fight. <laughs> I don't need a season of The Ultimate Fighter for that. Uh just have them fight put it on a fight card don't delay it three months or six months or whatever it would be just have them fight just have them fight i can understand why tony ferguson might want to be it'd be exposure for him um it certainly would build the rivalry to some extent i suppose um 
extra paycheck. Fine. I'm not mad at him for suggesting it, but uh, I don't need to see it. I just need to see the fight. And frankly, so long as you center it around Conor McGregor, and I suspect that the powers that be would, what more do you really need? What more do you really need? So I don't disagree that it would be probably better for this season than it has been for previous seasons, but I don't, I don't need to see that encumbered in any way. Uh, okay. All right, let's do this. Someone says, uh, fan favorite would need some clarification here. We know and love those two, but the hardcore audience isn't enough to pull solid ratings. I don't see casuals turning in for Nermi versus T-Ferg like they did when, say, Kimbo Slice was on the show, for better or worse. Yeah, it's basically right. Like, um, Nurmagomedov might end up being a big star. Uh, Tony Ferguson might end up being a big star, and they're certainly in not insignificant. I mean, they're more than that. But the idea that these guys are, like, guaranteed ratings draws, uh, I don't think that's true. All right. Uh, I just want to bring this up. Didn't get three wrecks, but it's an important point. He goes, what's up, Luke? And understand that you guys know I'm wrong about half the things I say. But he goes, I will admit you were right, and I was super wrong about this card, UFC 206. You maintain for weeks that this card lacks the big names, but it's a really deep card if you're an MMA fan. When this card was announced, I was questioning why it was a pay-per-view event. This card was the most entertaining card from top to bottom that I've seen in a long time. You had uh, almost every finish on this card, and the fights were competitive and fun. Can you remember the last time a card was watchable from the prelims all the way up to the main card? Someone pointed out UFC 199. That's true. UFC 202 was another good one. UFC 166. There's a bunch that were like this. That fight night that was in Australia, that was Bisping versus Rockhold. Not 199, but the one before that. That was a good one in terms of that kind of thing. Um, but a point about 206 that I think needs to be mentioned, and I saw a lot of people being like, oh, everyone was taking a dump on this card beforehand. Well, that's not really true. I think people were, fans and media alike, were put off by what happened with the main event situation, whether it was GSP not being on the card, whether it was, um, you know, just the disappointment of, of Johnson versus Cormier falling through and then Conor McGregor being stripped and then that interim title being created. There was a lot of discontent around what happened at the very, very top of the card. I don't think any of that is unjustified. All of that is makes a lot of sense. Uh, by the way, hilarious that they told GSP they would probably have to reintroduce him to the larger fan base. And granted, it's in Canada. But I'm told from people who were in attendance at 206 that they like the vendors were pushing GSP merch like it was going out of style. So take that for what it's worth. But neither here nor there. But so one, I would just say it's not actually true that like everyone was taking a dump on it. There was, there was discontent about what had happened at the top. But more than that, um, don't be the guy that apes the talking point that the UFC used a few years ago to get people to watch all their cards, which was, hey, the cards that people pay attention to the least, those are the ones that show up the most. First of all, it's just not true. That UFC Albany card was not particularly good, and no one cared about it. Um, so, I mean, and I could show you any number of cards like that. Moreover, it doesn't matter, right? The biggest audience of people that are MMA fans that are going to buy pay-per-views are casual fans. We may not like that fact, but it is just that, a fact. Right, that's why there's like when it's hardcore fans, it's like three hundred thousand or less that buy a pay per view, and when it's like Conor McGregor, it's well over a million plus. 
I should tell you about the audience there. They'll watch MMA, but mm, basically only when they're stars. That's just how pay-per-view works. The biggest audience is the casual fan, and the casual fan's number one um, measurement in terms of their purchasing decision is the, the, the level of star power on a card, and 206 didn't have it. And that's okay. That's fine, because here's the truth about 206. Now, look, I'm not saying every hardcore fan would identify this, but I think a lot of hardcore fans, if they were put off by what happened at the top of the card, again, no issue. But if they took a second look at that card before they made a purchasing decision, and again, look, maybe money's tight, maybe you have other things you'd rather do that weekend. I'm not saying that if you didn't purchase it, you're not a hardcore fan. What I am saying is, if you took a second look at that card and you were like, you know what? There's actually some value to this card. Not superstar value. There's no Conor McGregor. There's no Ronda Rousey, whatever. But there's some damn good fights on this. Krolov versus Serkunov. Land of Venata's coming back. I mean, look at this. Cerrone versus Brown. I mean, you can just go on and on. Then if you bought it and you saw it, that's the reward for being a hardcore fan. It's not true that the cards people ignore the most are the ones that do the best. That's just a talking point that UFC tries to tell you. Don't be the guy that just apes that back to me or to your friends. It's fundamentally not true, and you're just repeating an organizational talking point. Don't be that guy. Don't be that lady. Don't be that guy. But what I would say is, if you made an informed choice about this card, and you're like pleasantly surprised by it, or you're, or you're very happy with your purchasing decision, and you had a great time on Saturday, and the UFC absolutely delivered on Saturday. No, no two ways about it. That is the reward for being a hardcore fan. That is understanding that there is value to mixed martial arts between elite competitors that has not necessarily anything to do with substantial star power. That's your reward. That's what you get for being an informed, engaged fan. You get to watch the stuff that the donks who only like Conor McGregor, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like If they just like Conor McGregor, fine. That's just what they like. But you get, the, you get the gems that they miss because you're the one who's engaged. That's the truth of the situation. So, so for everyone who look, took a second look at this card before making their purchasing decision and was like, you know what? Okay, all right, I'll give it a shot. That's your reward. That, that is the payback for being a hardcore fan. And there are, there are downsides to being a hardcore fan. If you're truly dedicated about it, you, know, you give up a lot of your social life, your Saturday nights are... You know, you watch a lot of bad fighting to and giving up time with others for that act. But there are upsides too, and the upside is is that is that when when the rest of the world basically isn't looking, and they're never going to look if the star power equation is not uh, in a way that's to their liking. Um, but you don't really care about that stuff because you like MMA for MMA. Enjoy. Uh, Jones versus Rockhold at Submission Underground 3. After John Jones submitted Dan Henderson via arm triangle at Submission Underground 2, he proceeded to call out Chael Sonnen for the next event in January, which I'm sure was staged, by the way. However, Luke Rockhold later sent out a tweet challenging Jones for the next event instead. None would argue that a grappling match between Jones and Rockhold would be a far more compelling and exciting contest since both men are renowned for their grappling prowess in MMA. Question. This match was made. How do you see it playing out? I could easily see Luke Rockhold beating him. I'm not saying that he would, but I could see that. Luke Rockhold has vicious jujitsu. And uh, unlike Jones, uh, you know, has worked his way through the belt system in the gi and um, has competed at high level tournaments. Now, he's had a varying degree of success, but 
I would, I, you know, sure. <laughs> I would give Luke Rockhold a very good chance of winning that uh, contest. But, you know, what incentive does John Jones have to do that? Unless he was like really committed to competition or that match in particular or um, some kind of really tough test. What incentive does he have to do that? Like the benefit for Chael Sonnen is that a you get John Jones back on the card. B you know if you win it's a miracle, but if you don't, no one expected you to. John Jones looks good, probably beating Chael Sonnen, and uh, you go from there. So, so that's why they did that. This is really the problem with um, these MMA guys getting into jujitsu, like professional jujitsu competitions, because. A lot of them, like, you know, everyone like clown Brendan Shaw for what he did, and I don't think he handled that cyborg match the right way at all, but, uh, you know, he's not alone in guys who had a lot to lose by taking these contests and proceeded to compete in a particularly safe way. Look, even Dan Henderson. Dan Henderson and then John Jones match, like, there were some really good matches on that uh, card. But the John Jones and the Dan Henderson one, it was like an all-star contest where they were like kind of, sort of taking it seriously. Moments here or moments there. John Jones, you know, having a moment there with a the super duck and, you know, whatever. But um, it wasn't like, you know, this was not the same intensity between, you know, this is not the same intensity you see from Bruno Malfacini at, uh, at the Worlds, I can assure you. You know, so there was something missing from that. And I think a lot of these MMA guys, when they do this, there's something missing. Not every time, you know, I thought Rory McDonald really tried to give it to um, uh, JT Torres, that meta Morris. Joe Lozano, I think, tried to give Dylan Dennis a good one. But, you know, so credit to those guys. And I'm not mad at guys who didn't. I, 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 what I'm basically saying is I understand it. Like, they've got a lot to lose. It doesn't it doesn't make a lot of it, it, it never made sense for Brendan Schaub to want to go after, um, to go match with Cyborg. He's got nothing. I mean, if he wins, okay, great. But, you know, it was never in his favor. Uh, I think he knows that. I think he knew that. Maybe in a different circumstance, he could... I'm, I'm, I'm sure that... Look, here's the point about Brendan Schaub doing against Cyborg. I'm sure he could have done a lot better in a different circumstance. But in the one that he was in, it was, you know, very hard for him to come out of that looking good and very easy to come out of that looking bad or neutral at best. And, uh, and, and I think that's what happened in the end. I think it was a mistake to take a match if that's the approach ultimately going to have but um you know what i don't want to bag on brendan brendan shop's great um and i think that that was a learning lesson for him and a lot of guys and i like brendan a lot so i just think that a lot of these mma guys get into these matches and they're like uh this is not good for me and i think they're right but i just wish that going forward some of them would realize that a little bit sooner in the process let's see Someone goes, that was a sub-match. I just thought old man Henderson was having a snooze. So John, all boner-pilled up, went in for the dry hump. That's a funny a funny zing. Yeah, it wasn't particularly competitive. All right, Tim Kennedy's performance at UFC, UFC 206 and his future in the UFC. Hi, Luke. UFC 206 was an awesome card, but it was a tough night for Tim Kennedy. Obviously, Kennedy has had over two years off from the cage and he fought a very active opponent in Kelvin Gastelum. But that was an uncharacteristic night for in the cage for Tim. What do you make of that performance, and where does he go from here? Is this the last time we see Tim Kennedy fight in the cage? Did his participation in MMAAA 
and all of his other activities hinder his readiness for this fight? Well, this is sort of interesting because um, I mentioned this on my recap I did on my individual YouTube channel. I brought it up again on the Monday Morning Analyst. And there are a bunch of people going like, oh, you're just making excuses for Tim. What possible reason would I have for making excuses for Tim? I don't know him. Uh, we're not friends. Uh, I don't have any animosity towards him, certainly, but I, we're not like buddies or something. I'm just trying to call it like I see it. And, and maybe that perception is somehow misguided, but the the act of questioning whether or not that was the best Tim either we've gotten or that we could have gotten given other circumstances, I don't think is out of bounds. People want to say, well, what you're doing is you're taking away something from Kelvin Gastelum. I don't think I am. The two are not necessarily related. It wasn't like we saw from Kelvin Gastelum basically what we'd seen before, which still would be very high level. I think what you saw from Kelvin Gastelum was, number one, a patience in the game plan. Two, he was, whatever else you want to say about Tim Kennedy, going up against a significantly naturally bigger guy who is just absolutely built like a tank. Uh, and when I say patience, I, what do I mean? In that first round, there was that tight waist that Tim Kennedy had the entire time. And I was wondering to myself, man, why isn't why isn't Kelvin Gastelum fighting the hands? But the moment he needed to, he fought the hands, broke the grip, and turned it, spun in. And that from that on, you saw really crisp, awesome, excellent boxing. Great footwork, great head movement, great use of distance, great use of combinations. You know, you would have seen that regardless. The two are not necessarily, you may have seen it brought to life in a way that maybe it wouldn't have been brought to life otherwise, or or even more so, a tougher challenge would have really raised the level of Kelvin Gastelum. So a lot of people were like, oh, I take away something from Kelvin. No, I'm not. It's kind of, that's, that's, that's a really unfair thing to say. But I just think if you look at Tim Kennedy, you're talking about the guy that wrestled Michael Bisping to the ground for five rounds, something Chael Sonnen and Brian Stan couldn't do. And, and Tim Kennedy did it with a fair amount of ease. And by the way, passing guard and going to dominant positions the whole time. And he just looked completely out of his depth here. Like not even like a little bit competitive, like definitely not competitive. Even if you want to give him that first round for some levels of control, he was able to exercise from the tight waist. Um, so I don't know exactly what the cause is. You could point to a few things that seem to stand out two years off. That can't help. I know everyone likes to think that there's no such thing as overtraining, despite the fact that it is, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating, scientifically um, and, and from a research standpoint, validated, has a name, quite literally has a name, um, not merely for the physical effects, which is rhabdomyolysis, excuse me, rhabdomyolysis, rhabdomyolysis, um, rhabdo for short, the CrossFit donks know it because they do CrossFit, um, but the the way in which you inhibit your own technical skill and technical development. So that's true. And there's also just thing as ring rust, like whatever name you want to give that as well. Not everyone responds to ring rust every time in the same way, but that it is a real thing is a very, this is not contestable. It is a real thing. To what extent that affected Tim is a matter of debate, but I think it's at least okay to raise the question. Moreover, he remember he cut weight for 205. He absolutely drained himself and weighed in. Um, and then had to do it basically a month later. Uh, I wonder to what extent that contributed to things. Um, I also think that maybe Kelvin Gastelum, even if those things weren't a factor, um, I think the other part for Tim that you have to question is the game plan. And I mentioned this previously as well. He kind of fought Kelvin like Kelvin had missed weight. I'm going to lean on you with wrestling. I'm going to keep a distance. I'm going to attack the body with the, the front kick. 
that's those are the kinds of things you do to a guy who missed weight, but like he didn't. He had plenty of fresh energy. And if you're going to invest in wrestling to wear a guy down, understand it's going to wear you down too. Now the idea is not as much. You keep a level, a differential. It's higher than theirs. Um, but you get the idea. So, so there was a lot of things. I didn't think the game plan was great. Maybe the weight cut affected him. The two years off was not great. And now that he's not at a point where he's competing for a title, if what he said previously is true, then that probably was his last fight. Meaning, you know, even if he had won, if that didn't put him in a title place, then he was probably going to be done. Well, a loss definitely doesn't do that. So um, I haven't had a chance to catch up with him, but I will probably pretty soon here. Uh, true false. Max Holloway's witty trash talking games seem to have skyrocketed overnight. Well, I wouldn't call it witty, but I would say his game has improved substantially. So I'll say true. Even though Anthony Pettis still has the same skills as when he was champion, the game has evolved past his fighting style. Uh, that's a good question. I don't feel like his skill set is antiquated. I'm going to say false, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Cowboy Serrani will fight for the welterweight title sometime in 2017. I think that is true. Swanson versus Choi is a better fight of the year candidate than Lawler Condit. Ooh. Go back and rewatch Lawler Condit, but that feels false. Kelvin Gastelum is a more effective fighter as a middleweight than he was as a welterweight. That's another interesting question, right? Because he had the win over Hall, but Hall's inconsistent. He had the win over Marquardt, but Marquardt's very close to the end of his career. And then he had this one over Kennedy. And Kennedy is, of course, a very decorated middleweight. So this, again, goes back to the question of to what extent do you feel like that was a compromised version of Kennedy or whether you don't. Um, I still feel believe, I still, I still fundamentally believe that he'd be better at welterweight, but I don't think that's a bad question to ask either. Lando Venata is a special talent that will be a top 10 lightweight by the end of 2017, if not sooner. True. Both Max Holloway and Tony Ferguson are examples of the new breed of fighter. Sure. True. Different kinds, though. Even though McGregor was stripped of the featherweight title, he'll still show up in the next press conference with two belts on his shoulders. Almost guaranteed. True. Given Demetrius Johnson's performance last Saturday and his loss to Dominic Cruz, Cruz should be number one on the pound-for-pound pound list. Uh, I will say false, if for no other reason than Cruz's absence still makes that a bit questionable. And also, I, I wonder how DJ would perform these days. Uh, tw 2016 has been the biggest year for MMA in terms of exciting fights, pay-per-view buys, big news stories, and media attention. Probably true. Probably true. Uh, in 2017, at least one male fighter will man up and walk out to this banger of a song. And it's Nicki Minaj's Pound the Alarm. Uh, also true. If you listen to my radio show, I talked about how that song inadvertently, but unquestionably, propelled me to a PR in my overhead press. Came on the radio on my stream that I was using, and right in the middle as I had unracked the weight. And uh, sure enough, the weight went up. Science, y'all. All right, let's get into it. Holm versus De Rondami. Today was announced, well, yesterday was announced. Holly Holm will fight Jermaine Durandamy for the UFC women's featherweight title 
at UFC 208 in Brooklyn. What's your pick and how? Do you think Duran Demi or Holm stand a chance against Cyborg? Duran Demi, I think, would. I don't know about Holm. Um, pick for that one. Man, Duran Demi might just come up and shock everybody, to be honest. We'll have to see. Um, yeah, I might like Duran Demi in that one, to be honest. Uh I think she can fight better at different ranges, and I think she would be able to get a hold of home. I think she would be able to um, make use of the clinch, for, like literally force home into it, cut her off. I think she could tag her from distance. I think she's got a little bit more of a varied game at this point. Um, but we'll have to see. It'll be interesting. It'll be very interesting. Now, the question is, do you think it was disrespectful to Cyborg for not having her in the inaugural 145-pound title shot? Yeah, I mean, of course I do. All right, so let's get into that, shall we? Man, it is hard to know where to start with this one. Um, okay, so let's backtrack here a little bit. So Cyborg is a well-established 145-pound fighter. They want to make a... 135-pound fight with her versus Rousey because they are the two biggest names at that time, anyway, in the sport. So they get on a plan to try and have her do that, but she realizes that's going to be pretty tough to do, and uh, they start with these 140-pound catchweight fights. First of all, what happens as a consequence? Number one, she does make 140, and it's determined, as you can see, that she had a big drawing in... Uh, what 180 what was it one what was the one in brazil that was the big one where for here hold on so first of all she has a very large showing uh ufc 198 okay it was clear that she was a big media attraction there you might say well that's just brazil okay fair enough um now it's not clear she's necessarily a major pay-per-view draw at least not in that circumstance, but nevertheless, more than holding her own as an attraction on the card. So then she follows that up, if I'm not mistaken, with a win. Let's see. With a win over Lena Landsberg in Brasilia in September. Uh, also at 140 pounds. So she makes weight for those both both times. Um, and what did we learn as a consequence? One, that she could make 140, but it had an absolutely devastating physical effect on her. Uh, shockingly devastating. And what's interesting about that is this is the greater context of time in which people like Andy Foster and then the UFC more generally are going around and trying to curb some of the nastier effects of weight cutting by having things like early weigh-ins. So the sport is headed in this direction while they're forcing, and, and to an extent, Cyborg bears some responsibility. She's going that way. But she does make 140 both times. She wins easily both times. Um, it is shown that both in terms of ratings, and at least in Brazil, but probably in other places as well, she is a draw. She's a draw. She did quite well for those Brasilia ratings against some fairly stiff competition. And this is a woman who, of course, had the winner of Gina Carano uh, in Strike Force to a large audience as well. This is a woman who has been 
um, in the public eye and uh, drawing in one way or another at 140 or 145 pounds for years. Now, the concerns over to what extent there were enough women to make a division, they were not idle. They were real concerns. There actually still is concerns about um, now that they're making this division, who's actually going to go up there? We'll see. I don't think in the short run it's going to be easy. I think there's going to be a lot of complaints about the thinness of the division. Um, that's going to take a while to resolve itself. That's not an automatic thing. However, the efforts to get her to 135, if after the first weight cut you weren't convinced, I don't know how you weren't convinced after the second one. Um, it, to me, is... I, I just don't know what someone would have to say to you. She was probably telling you the well, she probably she was telling you almost not quite, but almost the entire time I can probably get to 135. But at what kind of physical cost? This is not weigh-ins are not a depletion contest. Who could be the biggest loser on the scale? Kind of thing. That's not what they are. They're how much can I give away while still retaining enough to compete at my fullest. Um, and everyone wants to say, well, she's still on steroids. Good. Well, then what you're basically saying is she's that USADA is a failure, right? Because you have someone who apparently can, and, I, and, and you might be like, well, people can cheat the USADA system, right? Well, what you're saying is you, you can look at Cyborg and scientifically use the old eyeball test to see that she is fooling everybody except you, apparently. Um, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You're, either USADA is doing enough of a good job or it's not. Either Cyborg passes the eyeball test as some as some kind of valid scientific measurement, or it's not. You know, um, here's the here's the truth of the matter. Let's just take a step back here for a second. We already knew she was a draw. She proved it again. Uh, we knew she was a 145 pound fighter, and she had to remind us again. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile. Uh, there was this larger context of healthier weight cuts for virtually every other fighter but her going on. And we made her go the opposite direction through peer pressure, through this phony bro conspiracy theory science uh, on social media that all she had to do was just basically run more and eat less. And there are still people out there who maintain this despite, like literally, like there could not be more evidence to suggest that was a ludicrous line of reasoning and people will just hold on to it because they are desperate to not admit they were wrong Mid admitting you were wrong is not that difficult an exercise all of us are wrong all of the time all of the time all of the time it, it is a it is a it is a condition of the human experience it's okay to admit you know what we just never should have done that and here we have finally a 145 pound division She's not even in it. What was that for? What was that exclusion for? What were those tremendous, in, terrible weight cuts that we put her through for? What was that body shaming for? What was that policing of her general appearance for? What was it for? Because in the end, what happened was a complete and total unequivocal capitulation to the truth 135 was never real it never should have been pursued and there are plenty of reasons while i think a women's flyweight division would be a better addition there are plenty of reasons given who cyborg is and what she can do for you to go ahead and make a 145 pound division 
in, in, in the UFC for women. What a galactic waste of everybody's time. I mean, it is shocking how long this has gone on. At UFC Baltimore, where John Jones fought Glover Teixeira, Dana White held a scrum where he called her Vandalay in a dress. We're going back to that or even earlier. Cryborg, whatever Ronda was calling. What a monumental waste of time and money and resources and pain and anguish and whatever else you want to call it and however else you want to inventory the amount of extraordinary fail here from an ideas standpoint. 135 for Cyborg was, remains, and will always be looked at as an extraordinary waste, a monumental waste of everybody's time. And the best part about it is she ravages her body to get down there, not once but twice, and she makes the weight. It'd be one thing if she didn't even make it. She actually made the weight. And now she's so screwed up that she can't even take the fight on a timeline conducive to her health. Now, that brings us to the question of, well, why February? Here's This is a very simple answer. Um, remember they rescheduled their pay-per-view in January? They basically canceled it. So what does that do for them? That puts them in a bit of a bind. That means that February pay-per-view needs to be um, a big hitter. And they're going to put probably great fights on that card. Look, here's the truth of the matter. Holly Holm versus Jermaine Durandamy is a sick fight. And frankly, I might like it at 145 more than I like it at 135. Forget even about Cyborg. Like, there's nothing wrong with that fight um, absent the greater context. That's a great fight. We should all be looking forward to that. And I'm happy for those ladies. Sure, Holly Holm's on a bit of a two-fight uh, losing streak. Or three. I can't remember now. Uh, what, she lost to Tate and then Shevchenko? Am I missing somebody? I can't even remember. Point being is, maybe she doesn't deserve a title shot. Okay, I wouldn't argue with that either. All I'm saying is, Holm versus Duran to me, in a context-free environment, that's a great fight. They're going to stack that February card. I can't wait for it. It's going to be great. But they, uh, WMEIMG, paid $4.2 billion to the organization in a way where they were admonished not once but twice by financial regulators for the amount of debt incurred to make that loan uh, happen. They have a lot of debt to finance. And blowing off pay-per-view for one month because they couldn't make it happen in Southern California which is where I believe it was originally in January. That means that February pay-per-view, they can't they can't duff on that one either. And Holly Holm, remember, her fight against Shevchenko didn't necessarily do all that great at the gate. The Fox show did really well in the ratings. Like, I still think Holm is a draw. I think inaugurating this 145-pound women's division is the right idea, even if it's not happening under the circumstances that it should. Um, so look, one f- UFC 208 is going to be phenomenal. It's going to be phenomenal. They're going to build that card up big, and maybe Max Holloway, Jose Aldo will be on that too. I, I, I don't know. But here's what I do know. they, they I don't think they financially can afford to not have a big pay-per-view in February, given the realities of the purchasing decision. And so everyone's like, oh, that's super disrespectful to uh, Cyborg. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt about that. That's not even up for debate. But from a financial standpoint, um, they're a little bit boxed in here and what they can reasonably uh, do and not do. And I think this is the question, or, or I think maybe the reality we have to start like becoming accustomed to. Like They have a ton of debt to finance here, a ton. I don't think this is the last of WME decisions where they're creating belts. I don't think it's the last decision they're making where they're skipping fights where people are in the queue in order to make bigger money fights. 
Um, I think they have a major incentive, not merely incentive, but nay, a requirement to have these substantial financial returns. And so that's going to get iffy with the product here over the next year, two, three, or four, um, especially as they begin to split the TV rights fees. We'll see what happens with that. But that's the greater context here. Everyone's like, oh, she turned down two fights. Like, that's really the issue. You know, when it was a family business, and I think that actually was a pretty fair description. Like, it was this big billion-dollar organization, and it ran like an incredible machine like no UFC or, excuse me, no MMA promotion ever has. All those things are true, but the fact that it was owned by some brothers and then the brother's friend and that they run it, it was, it, uh, you know, I had never really thought of it in terms of like a family business. You think of like, you know, a mom-and-pop shop at some strip mall as like a family business, you know, like the like the immigrant restaurant or something. Uh but in some ways, it kind of was, you know, and now it's not. Now it's a corporate entity, and that corporate entity is going to be driven by um, Excel spreadsheets in a way that maybe it wasn't before. And not like those guys before were doing it ham-fisted. I don't mean that, but um, they have, may have they may have displayed some loyalty to some key figures in ways that, A, they never really had that loyalty to Cyborg, though they had openly demeaned her at various moments in um, her career. And... You know, I think in a perfect world, even with those, even with that, uh, even with that um, less than cohesive relationship, if they weren't under financial burden, they probably would have waited for her, you know, because it just doesn't make any sense. Like she dominated that division for 10 years. She is that division, you know, to go ahead without her is, uh, you know, it, there's, it, there's nothing to say about that, but, um, but I, I don't. I don't think they can miss a pay-per-view in January and then miss another one in February. That would be that would be a problem. So there it is. But to everyone who was like, she can make 135. Nope. Uh, Follow-up. Cyborg has been saying her body needs to recover from her cut to 140, and specifically she said she would have she would have been able to fight the belt if she hadn't made that cut. Despite that, she hasn't given any medical explanation for why that is. Nor does any medical explanation fit. That's not true. That I'm aware of. What she has said is that she is struggling with severe depression. Do you think that factor is playing a larger role than people give her credit for? That's interesting. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. That might be part of it. But you're saying nor does any medical explanation fit. I don't know about that. I mean, I certainly I, I don't have a doctor who has evaluated her to get the greater details of this uh, given to us. But uh, I am willing to at least buy the idea that getting down to 140 twice at this extraordinary cost, which can profoundly affect your body's chemistry, um, is probably worth taking a bit of a sabbatical for. But I do think you're raising an interesting question. And Ian Kidd is a great guy uh, who raised this one, the severe depression one. That, to me, is interesting. It didn't get a lot of attention. Sort of folks blew it off and um, didn't really follow up with it. I don't know what that means. Maybe it was a, I don't know how to answer that, is the long story short. But I think it's definitely worth looking into. And you know what? Now that you raise it, I think I will. I think I will look into that. Uh, on the topic of John Jones, you mentioned last week about how an average person messing up in their 20s wouldn't be scrutinized by the public. In your opinion, do you think this level of scrutiny 
from the public actually hurts John Jones's personal development, or do you think it benefits him because, in the sense, the public is holding him accountable? I think it's a little bit both ways. On the one hand, the public um, attention he gets is a consequence of adoration from being a celebrated athlete, and that probably causes him to engage more in reckless behavior. In other ways, the consequences of doing that, which also comes from having your life magnified, uh, has probably helped him to curb some of those behaviors before they otherwise would be. So, for example, getting an Uber driver, I mean, even that he got too late, or like a personal driver to get him around. Even that came a little bit later in uh, a little bit later in than it should have, but I think it probably cuts both ways with him. It's a complicated question, you know. If you're if if the things that make you great cause more um, awareness, and then the ways in which you mess up as a consequence of that greater attention causes greater backlash, how does your development affected? by this wider visibility and it probably cuts in a number of different directions i don't think it's one way or the other in totality i definitely feel like you know showing up to court in cuffs and an orange jumpsuit will probably for most people get them to curb some bad behavior on the other hand um you know buying shots at the bars for everyone because you can afford it like it's nothing and that comes from, you know, not merely having a lot of money, but having a lot of attention as a public figure, right? Even though Hulk Hogan tried to argue who wasn't a public figure. <laughs> um, that can contribute to delinquency in different ways. This is a long question, but I'll try to get through it. Are fighters' mentalities dooming fighter associations before they even get started? When they were questioned about possible fighter groups, I found both Don Cerrone and Matt Brown's responses alarming and very telling. Cerrone more than once referred to his relationship with the UFC as being like a child to their parents. He said he felt as if he disappointed the UFC by joining Double M Triple A. No, he didn't say that. What he said was by not calling Dana, he felt like that. And that the UFC disappointment felt worse than if they'd punished him. Like, we're disappointed in you, son. Not We're not mad at you. Brown said the UFC had been pretty good to him and that he was appreciative of the lifestyle the UFC had given him. When he said that, part of it seemed as if he was comparing his lifestyle to that of a Walmart grader or something instead of a professional athlete. Viewing yourself, this is him talking, viewing yourself as the UFC's child, being appreciative of the lifestyle the UFC has given you. What about viewing the UFC for what it is, a profit-driven corporation which needs the talents and skills of their world-class athletes to make those profits? Do we think Michael Jordan negotiated business deals with while viewing Nike, McDonald's, Gatorade as his parents? Was this Tiger Woods' or Honor Palmer's mindset or the mindset of any athlete who has ever maximized their earning potential? If Cerrone's and Brown's mentality is the representative of many fighters, and I have a feeling that it is, these fighter groups have a lot of re-education work cut out for them. You know what's really interesting to me? That's a great question. Really good question. What's really interesting to me is the amount of peer pressure fighters put on each other. I've actually been doing a lot of reading about... Um, what happens in sport when athletes peer pressure each other? This leads all the way to different forms of sports governance, to PED use or lack thereof, um, to, I mean, any anything you can imagine where that might happen, where athletes might put pressure on each, other's, on each other, both privately and publicly. And what you find out is that peer pressure among athletes, direct or indirect, in other words, putting a armor on a guy being like, you shouldn't do that or you should do this, or also 
just making statements in the public generally that other fighters you may not know or other athletes you may not know read and pick up on and sort of internalize. It turns out that peer pressure is an extraordinarily powerful thing for athletes, for competitive athletes. Um, and I think you're seeing a lot of that here. A lot of them have this attitude of like what, what it means to be a fighter and the kind of mentality you need to succeed is that you merely are just not going to complain about your station in life. Now, of course, that idea has frayed and fractured um, and is uh, under prosecution, basically, in, in, as we speak today. But there is a lot of that mindset. Like you can't succeed in that line of work if you're someone who easily complains, it just won't work. And you might say, well, Conor McGregor doesn't do that and he's rich. Right, but that's Conor McGregor. If, if, if what Conor McGregor was doing was easy, then they would all be rich. But it ain't easy, right? But I think, one, we go back to that idea about the family business idea of Zufa previously and that kind of familiar relationship that the ownership had with not just certain fighters, but certain fighters who were in a position to affect their peers. That's one. Um, and I don't mean in a nefarious way. I mean, I think that they wanted to have those kinds of relationships. I don't think those were all strategic. They probably just had good relationships with Donald Cerrone. They may have just actually liked Donald Cerrone or Matt Hughes or Chuck Liddell or whoever. Like, I believe that. Um, so I don't mean that's a nefarious thing. I just think that's the way in which they, they acted. Although some of that might've been uh, any number of different things. Who knows? But, um, so I think it's the mindset. I think it's the way in which they interacted with the previous ownership. And I also think there is a little bit of that. It's like, look, what would I be doing were it not for fighting? Would I really have these six-figure checks? Would I be able to have a decent home, if not a nice home, a, a decent car, if not a nice car? I'd be able to pay my bills, my kids, like in the case of Matt Brown or somebody like that. Of course, some of these guys can't do this, but you know, there's a lot of them that are like what I would call middle to upper middle class, you know, who can have a good car and can have a nice home. And like, man, what would I be doing if it wasn't for this? They probably feel like, yeah, like this is great versus... Um, but the argument is right. It's not that you're like destitute. It's what could you have in a different circumstance? If there were some other rules in place about revenue share or whatever the case may be, you know, you might be happy with your, let's say I'm making up a number for some of the guys. And I realize this is a small number of the roster, but let's say guys who make like 250 a year, 250 K. What if it was, what if I told you that if you made some adjustments, it could be closer to seven or 800 K. And even then, some of them might say, you know, I'm good. I mean, Demi and Maya was like, I don't care about just making money. Like, I, I just want to fight for the title. It's it's extremely important to me. He's like, I have a nice life. So there are those guys, those guys too, which is another part, like the martial arts element. Uh, MMA is a mix, and I've always said this, and I think someone else borrowed this from me, but I, I'm, I, it's true. It's a mix between prize fighting and martial arts. And when you mix the two, you get this mercenary attitude, but you also get this one where it's this code of, of virtue. And I think a lot of these guys are like like Demi and Maya. It's much more about the personal development than it is the financial one. I don't know if financial one's not insignificant, but you get the idea. But to answer your question, like they fundamentally haven't accepted um, the idea that there's a maximization of their worth, and that that maximization of their worth is a is probably in many cases not all. In fact, I don't know how many, but enough to matter. A, a mag, uh, orders of magnitude greater than what they currently generate, and I don't, I don't, I don't think they fundamentally accept that, uh, either for reasons of 
perceived martial art, martial arts virtue, or it's good enough, or maybe they don't care, or maybe they don't believe, or there's a lot of factors that go into that. But um, fundamentally, if that relationship to money or that relationship to their own self-worth or that relationship to management doesn't alter, um, those to me are the biggest roadblocks. Everyone's like, oh, fighters don't get along, and that's the reason why they couldn't have a union. That's not the reason why they can't have a union. The reason why they couldn't have a union or an association or whatever ends up being the dominant um, actor on behalf of fighter interests is if it doesn't happen, um, I think it's because of the perceived attitudes aforementioned. And by the way, this is another one. Like People are like, oh, it won't happen because of fighter attitudes. Here's another one reason why it might not happen. No one has won the ideas game yet. So you've got Couture, Quarry, Vera, Newton, Keraz, Fitch, Pierce, Silva, Vanderlei. They fundamentally believe that, that they should be independent contractors, have protection under federal legislation, and have promoters bid for their services. Then you've got fighters like, previously anyway, Leslie Smith, and I'm sure others, who believed that getting union cards signed, becoming certified by the NLRB, and then having a union essentially indemnify UFC as a monopoly, but require them to have a legal obligation to negotiate with this union on behalf of their interest, that's another way. And presumably, maybe that's how St. Pierre believes and Cerrone, I don't know, uh, or Dillashaw or Kane or Tim Kennedy. I don't know exactly what they believe because MMAAA is a little bit all over the place, but um, you get the idea. You get the idea. No one has, no one has like convinced fighters our path is the best. Even the fighters, they agree something should be done. They agree that some kind of act is necessary, but as a matter of like what that idea is, there's no grand ideas. There's just a series of competing opportunities and competing ideas, and no single entity has won that out yet. And I think until that resolves itself, that's also going to be an impediment. Do you think keeping Holm away from Rousey to protect her from taking another beating was an intended consequence of moving Holly up? You know what was interesting was when they announced that fight with Duran Demi at 145, a lot of people were like, oh, there it is. There it is. They want Rousey to be a two-weight champion. Uh, I'm not saying that's wrong. That could very well be true. That didn't really occur to me. That didn't really occur to me. I, maybe Rousey goes up and tries that. I don't think so. Um, I don't think she'll be around long enough to do it, and I don't think she'll care. Uh, maybe if it's Cyborg at some point, they might find a way to pay him enough to do it. I don't know. But, like, again, I am absolutely not saying that's the wrong way to look at it. I'm just saying that was not what occurred to me. What occurred to me was that they needed to have one or two title fights for this February card. Um, they wanted Cyborg on it. She, for her reasons, wasn't able to take that timeline. She wanted a March timeline. And uh, um, they needed to go ahead. And I think they're creating this weight class as a way of creating value for not just this pay-per-view, but ones going forward. Also interesting to note, you know, Holly Holm was like, I'll fight Cyborg at 136. No, how about 138? No? Okay, I'm not going to go to 145. <laughs> then she goes to 145. Now, there must be a reason for that. Maybe they upped the pay. Um, but I'd be curious to see what that is. Because if she wins, 
I'm guessing she's going to fight Cyborg next. So, like, I don't know what's up with that. I don't quite understand it. WMEING, what are your thoughts on this group and their plans for the UFC? It sounds like zero fighters have met with the new owners, and the only press these folks have made is in regard to layoffs and reducing the amount of shows, as well as being admonished by federal regulators for taking a deal with an astonishing amount of debt. Don't forget that, too. Um, I don't know what to think about WMEIMG. On the one hand, I feel like they probably were right about some of the... Like, Marvis is down here. Come here, buddy. Come here. Um, I think that partly they were right about... Uh, trimming the fat organizationally. I mean, I think that's part of it. I think they were probably right about reducing the number of shows to some extent. I think that's probably true as well. But a big part of me also just believes that, like, there's a lot of things they could be doing differently, whether it's, you know, uh, media outreach, whether it's fighter outreach, whether it's, you know, if you're going from a family business, which is what they described it, to something more corporate, easing that transition is a fairly important goal and I don't feel like they've made a ton of effort to go ahead and do that. Um, so I don't know, but I don't, you know, the truth is about it. We're operating a little bit in the dark. I don't know exactly what all their aims and desires are. I don't know exactly what all their, you know, what all the things are that they want to do. It's a lot of it is still mysterious. Um, and I guess we're just gonna have to see it play out. But I think one thing that is pretty serious is that they've got a ton of debt. Here you go, buddy. They got a ton of debt that they have to finance. I keep saying it because it's true. And that is going to affect the product one way or the other. I'm not saying it's going to affect the bad in all cases. I'm not saying it's going to affect it good in all cases, but it's going to alter the calculus of how fights are made, how belts are put on the line, that kind of thing. Holly Holm, the first women's two-division champ. If Holly Holm wins at 208, she becomes the first two-division champion of the women's divisions in your MMA. I totally forgot about that. That's so true. Should Joanna have been given that opportunity before Holly, considering how consistent she has been? Sure. But, like, um, for some reason, women's flyweight is not on the docket right away. I, I, I think it's a, I think it's inevitable they're going to create women's flyweight. Uh, Bellator already has. Um, they're going to do it. I just don't know when. Turkey, ham, or yellow mustard? What is on the menu at the Thomas household? At Christmas, well, my mother-in-law is going to be over, so we're probably going to eat Colombian food. So we're probably going to have, for those of us who know what it is, we're probably going to have sobre barriga, ogao. Uh, what else are we going to have? Um, you guys never had ogao. It is whew, amazing. It's like cheese with green onions and uh, milk. It's phenomenal. Um, Probably have Morcija. Probably have um, what else are they gonna make? 
I don't know if you guys know this. Colombians make a hot chocolate in a very different way. First of all, they make it from like real like cocoa, but um, so it's not actually super sweet at all. It's kind of sweet. I mean, it has a hint of sweetness to it, but what they do is, and I'm not making this up, and, I, and my understanding is they don't do this all throughout Colombia, but where my wife is from, Bogota, which is in the mountains, it's cold. Um, they, and I'm not kidding. Ready for this? They put cheese in their chocolate. They put mozzarella cheese in their chocolate. So like they'll literally serve you chocolate and it looks like hot chocolate and it's in a, and it's in a mug. You can take your spoon and go like that and the cheese pours out of it. I'm not kidding. Um, they love it. <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan of that, but they love that stuff. Ask any Colombian from Bogota. They'll tell you about it. It's crazy how they do that. And then we'll probably have... I don't know what the Spanish word for it is, but they take potatoes, boil them, and then they roll them in salt. Um, like the little ones. It's sometimes mini, medium-sized ones, and they'll roll them in salt and serve them. It's just out of control. And my wife makes this incredible thing called ahi, which is like their salsa, but not quite, a little bit spicy. Um, and it's not like chunks of it. You just put, put a little bit on at a time. It's amazing. Buñuelos. We'll have those too. All right. <laughs> Here's Danny Segura hitting me up with queso blanco, not mozzarella. I always say mozzarella, but yes, it's queso blanco. It's like this. It looks like mozzarella. It's not mozzarella, but it looks like mozzarella. And they dump it in the hot chocolate and then they spoon it out. It's madness. Uh, okay. Good question. Northcut versus Gall. Luke, what are your thoughts on Northcut versus Gall matchup this weekend? Seems like Patrick Wyman is counting Gall out just because of the level of opposition the two have faced. Do you see it being competitive where either one can be victorious? This, to me, is similar to the CM Punk one, which I know is going to drive you guys crazy, but here's what I mean. Well, it's not similar to that. So it's sort of similar. Here's what I mean. I'm not comparing, like, Northcutt is as talented as CM Punk. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that, um, you know, I think Northcutt is probably going to be fine at welterweight, but I think that does naturally serve Gall better. Number two, I you know I've seen enough of Gaul's grappling to know it's probably better than Northcutt's, uh, if not substantially better than Northcutt's. Like Northcutt's grappling is not great. I'm not saying it won't be great. It's just not great right now, unless he's made substantial strides since UFC 200, and maybe he has. It's been it's been um, six months. You, can, you know, depending how good you are, you can get pretty good in that amount of time. But neither here nor there. Um, but I think that there's. The, the, the thought I had going into Gaul versus Punk was like, look, I basically think Gaul's going to win, but like, haven't seen a lot from Gaul, and we definitely know nothing about Punk. What, what are we going to do here? I'm going to just side with Gaul because he's the guy who's got a little bit of experience. Punk has literally none at that time. Uh, and then you saw there was like this insane level of discrepancy. Um, I don't expect that because I think we've all seen, one, Northcutt is a tremendous athlete. Two, he's got a lot of skills on the feet. Three, he does have experience competing. I just feel like if it gets to the floor, Gall has the advantage. But can he get it to the floor? We don't know. Look, there's still a ton of unknowns about Mickey Gall. Um, there's, a, I think you, if you have some reason for optimism, sure. But my general rule, and again, this will lead you astray sometimes, but my general rule is if they haven't shown it to you, be very careful in believing that it's there. Because MMA will, pull, will put you in circumstances um, – MMA will put you in circumstances where you are fully audited. And only after that full auditing do we really know a lot about the guys. The truth is, 
Northcutt's been audited a little bit more than Gall, so I think we are a little bit more in touch with his shortcomings. We don't really know about the shortcomings of Gall yet, and I'm sure he's got them because everyone has them. So what's going to happen there? Maybe we find out he's reckless on the feet. Maybe we find out he doesn't have a great chin. or so. I, I don't know. I'm just making something up. I'm just trying to posit it, but maybe he keeps his hands down when he exits at the end of combinations. So he's got something, I'm sure, and we just don't know what it is yet. So like, do I totally understand Patrick's apprehension about Gall? Sure, of course. Uh, I just feel like if it goes to the ground and – We'll find out on Saturday if it does, but if it goes to the ground, I do believe there'll be a substantial advantage for Mickey Gall there. Uh, let's see. There's another question about Tim Kennedy, but I kind of already got to that. UFC and Fox 22 main card. Look, which fights are you looking forward to the most on the card? Perry Joban is opening up the main card. Can't wait. Northcutt versus Gall. I am looking forward to that. Faber versus Pickett, and then Van Zant versus Waterson. I would say the main event, just to see the development of Paige Van Zandt, to see how far she can go between camps, uh, how much better she's actually getting, you know, uh, what kind of ratings she might draw as a headliner. I think that's kind of interesting too. So that's kind of where I'm at for me. Perry versus Joe Ban is just awesome. By the way, a buddy of mine works out at uh, Equinox Gym, which is a hoity-toity gym. They're in a few cities, I think, across the country. They have a, they have a couple of branches here in D.C., it's it, by the way, ready for this? It's inside the Ritz Carlton in DC. I was like, dude, how much money are you spending on this place? But anyway, um, you have me a free guest pass, so I went and I'm lifting, and it's all these dudes. Like, there's no serious lifter in there at all, uh, even though they have really nice stuff. There's not one serious lifter. It's like rich kids whose parents pay for them to go, who are just doing curls for the girls. Anyway, um. But there was a po there's posters on the wall of like super fit people, and I'm getting water by the water fountain, and I look over, and it's a picture of Alan Joban, but not as like UFC fighter Alan Joban, just like for the Equinox campaign to have like beautiful people on their walls, and you know these like dramatic black and white photos. So credit to Alan Joban, you know. Uh, okay. Rousey versus the media. Look, what is your take on her media silence? I heard rumors that she is even upset at Joe Rogan for his criticism of her post home. Is this a wise strategy for selling UFC 207? Man, if there is one thing I don't think she cares about, it's maximizing sales for UFC 207. Of course, she probably gets paid by how much it sells. And of course, you know, some level she cares that it does sell, but she is not interested in getting out there and doing a thousand calls for a thousand shows for a few thousand extra buys. I don't, that's not what she's interested in at all. Um, and on that level, I don't blame her. I really don't. She owes us nothing. She owes, uh, Ellen, nothing. She owes me nothing. You might say she owes the fan something. And that's something, if you're a fan, you can take up with her as a fan. I don't, I don't think I have an ability to weigh in there one way or the other, but like, you know, she doesn't know us anything. So I don't care on that level. The only thing I just sort of mind is like, if someone says something about themselves, if they adopt a mantle about themselves, um, or they adopt a mantle in their lives, I should say, and there are questions about how or why, I don't think I'm wrong for asking it. She doesn't have to answer it from me or anyone else. But I don't feel like I have to retract my line of questioning, if that makes sense. So, um, but 
you know, she's probably got a lot of money and doesn't feel like she needs to engage in any kind of behavior where she is indebted to anyone's, especially after what happened with, against Holly Holm, where maybe she would have lost regardless, but um, she definitely was feeling the burden of an extraordinary amount of media pressure. Okay, Luke Thomas, hypocrisy. Let's see what this is all about. Hi, Luke. Don't you think your harsh criticism of yellow mustard users during last week's podcast, was it last week or like two weeks ago, was a touch hypocritical given in the same podcast you stated your libation of choice is the yellow mustard of whiskeys, bourbon. Well, that's a completely unrealistic and unfair way to describe bourbons. I know you said you prefer other whiskeys. I do, like the Japanese variety. But it's not as if yellow mustard users don't also prefer a mild Dijon, a hot English one, or many fantastic German varieties. Well, I don't know why you would call bourbon the yellow mustard. The reason, look, and the truth about this was like, there were some people who wrote me, they were like, man, I swear, I got hate mail over that. People were like, F you, I love yellow mustard. Who are you? I'm like, if, if you take a rant about yellow mustard, where I call people who use it child predators seriously, you have greater issues than the fact that you eat a trifling version of, of mustard. But the, the point about mustard is that yellow mustard, look, there is a certain level of acidity to it and, and a variety of it that ma matches well with certain um, salty meats, right? But uh, first of all, one thing that everyone would brought up was like, oh my God, well, how can you say don't eat yellow mustard if you eat hot dogs? Hot dogs are trash food. Maybe where you come from, but it's not true. You can find high quality sausages uh, made by either your local butcher or some kind of vendor in your town in all likelihood that I guarantee are high quality. I guarantee you this idea that like, well, I mean, yeah, if you go to Piggly Wiggly and you go to the bargain line and you pull out like, you know, their nubs version of hot dogs. Yeah, you're eating trifling food. But if you investigate a little bit and you look around a little bit, you'll find that there actually is possible to produce a, a, re, a respectable quality of meat inside of a hot dog. But neither, neither here nor there. The truth about mustard is that it's incredibly complex and and uh, and varied. And the yellow mustard variety is like literally the most simple of them. And it has some applications that where it's fine, basically. But um, but people got like super upset about it and they got all, I got, I got literal hate mail about it from people being like, I love yellow mustard. I'm like, well, you're a redneck. What do you want me to tell you? Uh, as for bourbons, bourbon is just, uh, I mean, there's all different kinds of whiskeys, right? Scotch is kind of it's, what, aged for three years, has to be aged in, in Scotland. It has to be made in oak caskets that have been, uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, bourbon is just the kind that's been in the United States. It doesn't have to be in Kentucky. The Kentucky, the Kentucky, the Tennessee whiskeys have to be made in Tennessee, of course. But bourbons can be made anywhere. Um, and I like the rye variety in particular because it's a little bit sweeter because of the corn mash. But uh, it's not true that bourbons are lower quality generally. You can get some rot gut bourbons, sure. Jim Beam is, is the yellow mustard of not merely whiskeys, but uh, I would say liquor generally. It is, it is, it is trifling. But it's cheap and it's easy to get drunk off of. So there's something to be said for that. If I got drunk off yellow mustard, like I got super effed up of it, I'd probably eat yellow mustard all the time. But I don't. So it doesn't do me a lot of good. But it's not true that bourbons are like by definition lower quality. That's not true. Uh, there might be a lot of low quality bourbons, but um, um, there's a lot of low quality scotches. There's a lot of low quality Tennessee whiskeys. Like, 
It's just the way, just the few requirements about how it's made from the oak caskets to, the, to your aging to being made on American soil. Like Eagle Rare is, I mentioned it last week, is excellent. It's super excellent. Um, and the Japanese whiskeys are like out of control good. Turns out the Japanese are good at many things, but making good whiskeys, they are very good at. Uh, okay. Let's see. You go on a rant about Carl from The Walking Dead. I had to give up on The Walking Dead because I hate Carl so much. I, I couldn't believe, like, I mean, he's better now, you know? Like, by the time I'm done with him, the show finally turns around and he stops being an awful POS. But there was literally, I mean, weeks on end of my year where I was like, I cannot believe they haven't kicked this dude in the back on some hiking trail left him with a broken leg for dead and just let the zombies go to work on him. Um, such an impudent little S. I mean, just barnacle. He was the barnacle on all these various colonies that, that you know, everyone's like, the governor was evil. No, the go governor was the governor. Carl's evil. Carl was like, <laughs> like who's worse, Carl or Negan? Mm, it's debatable. All right, women's divisions. Hi, Luke. Do you believe the USC will start a women's flyweight division at some point? Yes, I do. Luke, has the USC potentially paved the way for a much bigger future fight with the creation of the women's 145-pound title? Lots of assumptions, but if Rousey beats Nunes and Holm wins the 145-pound title, is Rousey versus Holm for the 145-pound title a much bigger fight than it could have been otherwise? I don't think they're going to make that. Could be wrong, but I don't think they're going to make that. And if Rousey should beat Holm, and take the 145-pound title and the 135-pound title and then go on to fight Cyborg because that's a much bigger fight than it would be otherwise. Sure, under that circumstance, of course it would be, yes. Do you think Rico Verhoeven would transition well to MMA? I've not seen enough of his ground game to know. Do you think the owners of the UFC would ever take a look a glory? I don't think so. I don't think they want to get in the kickboxing business. After seeing the smaller guys on a sub two on um, submission underground two go for leg lock after leg lock, what is your preferred submission as a big guy when grappling? I am a big fan of topside Kimuras. That's my favorite. Not so much chokes, not Kimuras underneath. From I don't like Kimuras underneath anymore. Uh, I like on top, getting the grip, popping it over the back that's that is that is the uh <laughs> that is the uh, japanese whiskey of submissions for your boy all right true or false pvz versus waterson goes to a decision um false northcutt beats gall handily false he might win i don't think he beats him handily perry knocks jovan out true i think mike perry might be pretty good man i don't know but we'll see uh, Duran to me versus home fight will be a very close decision. Probably also true. Superboy beats Yair if they fought. Ooh. Maybe. I'll say yes, but maybe Yair comes out, looks amazing against Penn. Holloway beats Aldo. I don't think so, but I would, I, I, when I say I don't think so, I'm not very confident about it. And I think that if Holloway won, it would be amazing. For featherweight, you know what's interesting? Everyone's like, "Man, featherweight got left for dead," and certainly Connor's absence. There's no arguing about it. Connor's absence hurts the division. Fact. 
not saying otherwise. But this was my point about like, oh, he cleaned featherweight out. No, he didn't. And look at how interesting featherweight really still is. Would it be better if Connor was there? Of course. Is it not as good because Connor is not there? Of course. But featherweight is super interesting right now. From everything from Yair versus Penn, you saw Choi versus Swanson. Now what's going to go on happen with Holloway versus uh, Aldo? And you can go on and on. There's a bunch of other fights and guys in there who I care about what they're doing. Like it's the idea that this is like left for dead. If that were the case, we wouldn't be nearly as interested in these fights as we are. There's a ton of life left at featherweight, and I think that's proof of the fact that like the like he didn't really. I mean, he definitely affected it and moved on. He was the storm that came through, no doubt about it. But like that, he just completely crushed it and just you know left it for dead. I don't buy that. All right, let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Jim Beam. Uh, okay, pay-per-view numbers for 205. Got to ask Dave Meltzer. Jim Beam, which is Japanese-owned. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Like, that is Japanese-owned. To be bourbon, it has to be made in the United States. Uh, it got me through my 20s. Ha, ha, ha. My 30s moved up to Knob and Angel's Envy. Knob Creek is good if you're trying to get super banged up, but it's not that tasty. But it, I think, what is it? Like the, it's like, what is the what is the ABV on Knob Creek? It's high. Oh, it's it's uh, it's a hundred proof, so it'll get you, it'll get you torn up, real nice. Uh, who wins the following MMA match? Kali Muscle versus Rich Piana, probably Kali Muscle. Rick Ross versus Riff Raff. Rick Ross. It's a weird question. What is next for Emil Mech or Meek? Have you probably pronounced it? Was his performance impressive considering breaking his rib in round one? Super impressive. I think there's a little, a few things he does that are a little bit unrefined, but he's got, he seems to be a physical powerhouse. And I think if that guy can continue to work on some of his um, technical development, he's already got all the physicality and he's got a great attitude for fighting generally. He might go pretty far. If you were Chael, would you take the John Jones grappling match? What do you have to lose? Why not? Max Holloway is the first American champ at 145. 145 was the only UFC division to never have a U.S. champ. I'll take your word for it. I haven't looked into it. Ree uh, Jones versus Rockhold and BJJ. Could the incentive be to antagonize Cormier by beating his partner? Does he need to go through all that process and risk it to antagonize? He can antagonize Cormier on Instagram. Uh, if Durandamy wins, what chance do you give her against Cyborg? She has a legit kickboxing background. Yeah, she has a super legit kickboxing background. Um, the problem is if Cyborg gets her to the ground, Durand and me is no match. On the feet, might be competitive, but on the ground, it's not competitive. Looks like Joe Duffy and Lorenz Larkin will be testing free agency. What is the UFC's thinking on this? That they don't need them. Whether the UFC is right or wrong is another issue, but that's their thinking, that we're not going to pay you anything that you think you need. We're going to save our money for people that we really want to pay, and you can go along your way. Great for Bellator. Man, are you kidding? Signing Joe Duffy up for Bellator? That'd be awesome, for at least for Joe Duffy. Lorenz Larkin, too. And they could use some help, man. These fights that they're putting on, like the one in January is going to be good. But, like, you've seen these ratings. Like, they're getting decent peaking numbers, but, like, the average number, they're sometimes not even clearing 600,000.
Where do you stand on fighters watching tape of their opponents before a fight? Is it always a good idea? I think it's always for at least someone in your camp to do it. Some fighters are very superstitious. They don't like doing it. I can understand that. They think they perform better without it. I respect that. I take their word. But someone in that camp should have a look at it. And just having no tape on your opponent, either from you or one of your coaches or trainers, I just don't believe that's the best way to win at an elite level. The good news is that because she didn't make 135, the UFC brought in featherweight. Yeah, maybe to an extent. Maybe they would have brought it in anyway, but yeah, sure. I mean, it probably hastened it to some extent, I suppose. But it could have been done a while ago anyway. True or false, the UFC are hoping to make Rousey versus Holm as champ versus champ and then have Rousey face Cyborg. I don't believe that. I mean, I could be a thousand percent wrong about it, and maybe I am, but I'm just being honest with you. I don't, I don't buy that. Other than Cyborg, Holm, and Duran to me, who else can fill out the women's featherweight division? There's a, there's a few women's. Look, it's going to be a bunch of nubs that you've not heard of. I do think Megan Anderson's an interesting prospect who could develop into somebody a little bit greater. Um, we'll see. We'll see how many women at 135 move up. We'll see how many at 135 go to 125 when they create that. So, But the answer is not who in the short run fills it out. The question is, by creating it, who can we ultimately attract, groom, develop, and add? That's the question. Who would you favor in a Kelvin Gastelum versus Robert Whitaker matchup? Man, that's a good question. Mm. Um. Probably Whitaker, but Gastelum is maybe 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 he can beat him. Probably Whitaker. Uh, what is your squat? Like anyone cares about this. What is your squat, deadlift, and bench PR? Let me just put it to you this way. Here's a here's a nice little rule of thumb for you. Not you, but like you. Um, you want to have three plates on either side for your bench. You want to have four plates on either side for your squat, and you want to have five plates on either side for your deadlift. That's a nice rule of thumb to have. Maybe you have more. Maybe you have less. Try to always get in that position. Three on bench, four on squat, five on each side. And when I say plates, I mean, I mean, forty-five pound plates. Um, you know, you get into Pete Rubish territory. You've got literally, literally weights falling off the bar. But um, you get the idea. Who can take a better punch, Superboy or Ferguson? Superboy. I mean, I don't know if there's anyone in the world that can take a better punch than him. Opinion of Max's Where's Aldo campaign, whilst Aldo has already accepted the fight for 208. Uh, here's what I'd say about it. It's a little goofy. As you've noted, it's not exactly, like, correct. But what I'd say is, um, you know, he's trying. My man's out there trying. And he's getting better at self-marketing and self-assertion in the public eye. And I think that's always a good thing. the hell let's see although Stevens looked much bigger Edgar lifted him effortlessly how are his takedown chances against Max Max is hard to get a hold of man um 
probably good, but even if you take Max down, he's good at getting back up pretty quickly. We'll see. People would like love to know my physical dimensions. Uh, how do you like pistachios? Rarely. Jackson Wink wanted Holly to fight Cyborg at 136 and at 138. Now she's fighting 135. Yeah, I'd be curious to talk to her about that. Uh, there might be other circumstances at play. Uh, Anthony Joshua versus Klitschko. Who you got? I will go with Klitschko, but I would love to see Anthony Joshua win. Uh... People asking like who from Glory would transition well? Probably Van Roosmalen, who has training from judo. But like if you're just asking like who's striking would transition well, like all of them. If we're just talking striking, like all of them would do well. But Van Roosmalen has a grappling background, so he's a little bit different. Your opinion: Rockhold versus Musasi. I take Rockhold. Poirier versus Kiesa. Ooh, I might like Kiesa in that one. Duffy versus Barboza. Maybe Duffy, but that's a tough one. Krillov versus Gustafson, Gustafson, Joe Ban versus Cerrone, Cerrone. What is the likelihood of your UFC promoting CM Punk for an organization that airs on Fight Pass, i.e. Victory or Titan? Basically zero. Not like zero, zero, but basically zero. Someone says Favor had a rough year. Yeah, he did. Let's see. Why is Sacramento such a big part of the promo narrative leading up to the UFC on Fox on par with Toronto or Dublin? Well, because Faber's retiring there. Sacramento has been a big hub. Look, anytime a fighter makes their community part of their identity, it's always going to be part of that sales angle when they're selling a fight. Same thing with Stipe in Cleveland. Now, that may have not been like the biggest thing for his UFC 203 pay-per-view, but I guarantee if they go back there, like the Cleveland-Stipe thing is just part of his identity. They're going to bring it up. Dublin was more than just one fighter, so it had a, a big significance and it had a bigger fight with a bigger star. But um, any anytime a fighter does that, it's always part of it. It's always part of it. So Sacramento has the home of Team Alpha Male. Uriah Faber, who's done a lot of important things in the sport. It's his last fight. Paige Van Zant coming out of that team. She's in the headlining act. Um, you know, Sacramento probably served as a bit of a Northern California home for mixed martial arts generally beyond what Team Alpha Male or Uriah Faber had done. So it makes plenty of sense. It makes plenty of sense. Um, well, who's your pick for breakthrough fighter of the year? Lando Venata won and lost, but in the UFC, but he had you know big performances. And Francis Ngannou, did you all see Francis Ngannou <laughs> at UFC Albany? I mean. Yeesh. I don't even know what to say about that guy. Just Mack truck strong. Insane. Would it be promotional malpractice to not have a Diaz brother fight at UFC 209? Some people really care about that. I don't. Um, on Cruz Dillashaw to be fight of the year. Wasn't that 2015 or am I? Was that, was that this year? Maybe keep them all straight. Uh, yeah, this is 2016, man. I can't believe it. Unbelievable. That's a good one. 
fight of the year so far. I don't have to think about it. Why don't you like to listen to Drake's music? Well, largely because I have a set of testicles. Uh, no way that you can think all of his music is bad, right? Well, I wouldn't say I listen to all of his music, but from what I have heard, it is trifling. I like hip-hop from, like, Sean Price. If you just imagine and you understand what Sean Price is, it would be very hard for me to, understand, like, to appreciate Drake. Also, I have a set of testicles. Uh, okay, let's see if there's anything else here from Twitter. Did UFC Bungle 208 lost the January pay-per-view? Now they've yet to announce a main event for NY. Ticks available tomorrow. I don't think so. I think it'll end up um, doing pretty well in the end. I think they're going to stack it. I really do. Like whatever other issue you might, you might have, I think they're going to stack it. So we'll see. All right. Any more of these? Who'd you like to see Lando Venata fight next? Man, anybody. I am not too picky about that. I would have loved to see him fight Joe Duffy, but what are you going to do? Would you like to see him fight a ranked opponent? Not necessarily. Maybe someone who will try to wrestle him a little bit so we can see how good he is. Um, someone says Francisco Trinaldo would be a good one, sure. Maybe, um, maybe um, who's the Hawaiian guy Trinaldo smashed? That would be a good one. Um, God, I can't remember his name. Second, his striking is obviously very high level, but how highly rated is Venata's wrestling or grappling? I think we need to see that. Um, if the UFC had a 115, 125, 135, and 145 pound divisions, who do you think would be champion? Joanna, Shevchenko, we'll see about Rousey, and I'll probably go with Duran to me, but then Cyborg. All right, it is 2.30. Let's do this. Let's call it a day. Appreciate everyone tuning in. Uh, give this a like, share it around, let folks know about it. If you have a question, you can reach me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. I posted a picture in the comments of the, not the mock-up of the shirt itself, but the logo we're going to be using for the t-shirts, which should be out anytime soon. There's going to be, I mean, and I know you don't believe me, but like, seriously, we're like in a matter of days, they should be, they should be readily available. So we'll get that going. Um, thank you so much for watching. Stay tuned. For more coverage for UFC on Fox 22 at MMAfighting.com, subscribe to the channel. Again, give that video a like. I always appreciate you guys when you do. And until next time, don't eat yellow mustard. Bourbon's pretty good. And stay frosty.